All right. So yesterday we had the Fed minutes. Uh, looks like it actually had a pretty significant impact on the markets today. Want to go over what uh, what the Fed said and how the comments have affected the different markets. So look right now, uh, it's about 11 in the morning Eastern time. Uh, all U.S. indices, a lot of weakness there. You have the Dow's down over 300 points. S&P 500 is down a percent. NASDAQ's down one and two, uh, one and a quarter percent. You have oil lagging again due to different factors in the market coming from all the OPEC uh, announcements. You have gold at 1800, it's about flat for the day. Uh, the dollar is slightly weaker today, especially against the Euro. The Japanese yen's catching a bid. And you also have US Treasury yields, interestingly enough, are falling. You have the US 10 year is now at 1.28%. So you have a lot of buying in, in bonds from somewhere. I don't know if that's coming from investor demand or if that's the Fed buying more bonds, right? But you see a lot of bets against the market today. And I think a lot of that is starting to stem from the Federal Reserve comments and how the market is viewing those. So I want to get into the Fed minutes yesterday what was said and what the general consensus of the Federal Reserve is from the FOMC meeting and what the outlook is going forward. And we'll remember uh, about three, four weeks ago, the Fed announced that they were going to do a rate hike in 2023, which is completely laughable because if they saw rising inflation and they were concerned about it, the time to do something about it would be now, not a year and a half from now. But you know, the fact that they're saying they're going to raise rates in 2023 shows they're just trying to buy more time before they have to raise interest rates because they know raising interest rates would implode the entire U.S. economy. But let's get into it. So yesterday, a lot of the participants in the FOMC meeting, they noted that an adjustment to the Federal Reserve's rates would help keep federal funds rate well within the target range. Various participants saw a taper somewhat earlier than anticipated. And this is something that they've been saying for over a month now, right? It's not anything different. The Fed really tries to forewarn and forecast ahead of time for the markets. But I think what we're seeing today is that people are starting to not believe the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, if you remember in 2018, said that they were gonna start hiking rates and that they were going to be on autopilot. And as they started hiking rates, they hiked them, I forget exactly, but I think they went up uh, 75 basis points, right? So they started raising rates and then the markets threw a fit. The markets in December of 2018 were extremely weak. It was one of the weakest Decembers we had seen in the markets. And it shows that the market cannot handle any rise in interest rates, right? The, the Fed has kept interest rates so low for so long it has created so many imbalances in the economy and so much debt that the Federal Reserve no longer has the ability to raise rates to a normalized level, right? But again, when you lower interest rates, it just creates a distortion of balance in the markets with credit. And once you lower interest rates artificially, there is no raising them back up without causing some type of uh, market correction or market crash. Right, because all of the market valuations today and stocks and real estate and other financial assets, it's all because the Fed has kept rates low, which has caused asset prices to rise. And the second you start raising interest rates, it's gonna cause values of financial assets to come crashing down to normalized levels, right? But this just exposes that the Fed is in a box and there's nothing they can do to prevent either inflation or a, de a depression, right? Because as inflation continues to rise, and we're seeing in the numbers, week after week, month after month, prices are rising. Grocery prices are rising, rents are rising, housing prices are rising, materials prices are rising, oil prices are rising. Everything in the economy is rising, right? And it just shows you that there is inflation all over the place and it's not getting any better. And the Fed is clinging to this idea that inflation is transitory. Well, there is no other time in the US history where inflation has been transitory, first of all. Second of all, the idea that inflation is transitory is ridiculous, 
Now, part of it is the Fed is clinging to the narrative that as people return to the job market in September, they can stop doing as much accommodative policy for the economy by keeping interest rates low and purchasing financial products like bonds because the economy now is still in need of help since so many people are unemployed. And this actually, it's a contradiction to the whole narrative that most economists believe. Most economists say, we're not gonna have heavy inflation because you can't have high inflation in a time where there's high unemployment. And they will reference what's known as the Phillips curve when they say this, but it doesn't make any sense. Because if you think about it in today's day and age, the idea behind rising unemployment, creating a deflationary environment is that if people are not working and not earning money, then they're not able to go out and spend in the economy the way they would be if they were working. But what you have to consider is that most people that are not working right now are making more money from unemployment benefits and from the stimulus checks that were given over the last year that people are actually earning more money as a majority of people not working than when they worked. So the fact that we have high unemployment does not mean that we're not gonna have high inflation because of that. But this is just an example of the market trying to have things both ways. Because you'll notice the Fed keeps saying when people return to the job market in September, right? Then we can stop being accommodative. But if by the same rationale that they're saying that unemployment is, is uh, deflationary, but they expect many people to return to the job market in September, well, that would mean that by their own definition, inflation is not transitory because if they return to the job market in September, that will cause a rise in inflation as people can start earning more money, right? So it shows that they even believe inflation is not transitory. They're just not honest about it. But in reality, what's going to happen is we're going to have rises in prices due to what's been going on for the last year, right? You have to understand that when people don't work in large, large capacity, it is actually an inflationary pressure. Because when you go to work and you help to provide goods or to produce services for the economy, that creates a bigger supply, right? Which then helps to lower prices. Well, when you have a bunch of people that are unemployed, that means that there's just a shortage of supply, which means that prices have to rise. So the longer people are unemployed, the more inflation you'll have in the medium term. So we're seeing that now in a lot of materials prices, but we're going to continue to see that. And you know, I don't think that people are going to return to the job market as much as people believe in September. So I think the Fed is running out of time here before they have to make their ultimate decision. And again, as I've been saying, that ultimate decision is they're either going to have to allow rates to rise substantially to fight inflation, or they're going to have to not fight inflation and allow the economy to continue to grow artificially. But either way, they can either raise rates to fight inflation and therefore cause a depression or they can allow rates to stay low so they don't cause a depression, but allow inflation to run hot and possibly get even hyperinflation. So the Fed is in a box. They basically have only two choices and both choices are terrible, but pretty soon they're going to have to make this, this they're gonna have to make this decision. And again, I think it's because the markets are starting to understand that the Fed is in a box and can't do anything about the inflation problem that we have. What we, the, the Fed is not going to fight inflation because that is politically the worst uh, possible route, right? Because if they fight inflation and they raise interest rates, they are going to be the cause of the market crash that we're going to have from that. So that is not going to happen. Most likely they are just gonna let inflation run and run and run. And if you notice, they said a couple of years ago, right, going back to 2018, there is no inflation and there will be no inflation from this policy. Now they're saying we have inflation, but it's transitory. Well, they're only going to be able to get away with that transitory narrative for so long, right? Once we have rising inflation month over month, 
for four, five, six, seven, eight months, at some point, the market is not going to believe that inflation is transitory. They're going to believe it's here to stay. But we're not going to get a substantial rise in monetary policy from the Fed. As they said a couple of weeks ago, they're thinking of raising rates in 2023. It's completely laughable. If they couldn't raise rates successfully in 2018, how are they going to raise rates successfully in 2023? Right. Let's do some comparison between the numbers of 2018 to now. And again, the, as I go through these numbers, you're going to realize the reason that we have these big increases in these debts is because the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates too low, too long. But if we go back to uh, the fourth quarter of 2018, right, first of all, today, one thing that people are not talking about, right, they're talking about all the extended unemployment benefits that are probably inflationary, all the stimulus checks that are probably inflationary. Another inflationary factor is all of the student loan debt that's out there. Right now, we have $1.7 trillion in student loan debt outstanding in the United States. And right now, there's a moratorium on student loans. People do not have to pay their student loans right now. So A, that gives them more money to go out and spend in the economy, which is more money to just bid up prices of all the existing supply. But what people are not considering is if, P if students end up not having to pay their student loans back, the government has already budgeted in these tax revenues as part of the budget. So if people can't pay these student loans back, the budget deficit is going to go up even higher. But not only that, but a majority of these student loans are not owed directly to the federal government, they're owed to private banks. And the government has co-signed these loans, guaranteeing them. So if they're forgiven, right, if the student loans are forgiven, in other words, what that means is the federal government's no longer going to uh, make the individual pay the loan back to the bank, but the federal government itself is going to have to pay the loan back to the bank. How much more money printing is that going to take? Well, $1.7 trillion more that you can add to the national debt if they forgive student loans. But student loans, in a sense, have already been forgiven because no politician is going to come out and say, OK, you didn't have to pay your student loans before, but now we're going to start forcing you to pay them back because nobody would get reelected forcing students to pay their loans back. People vote with their pocketbooks. But anyway, getting back to the 2018 comparison here, right? When you go back to 2018, corporate debt was $6.3 trillion in the economy. Now it's 10.5 trillion. So that corporate debt has been raised by almost 4 trillion, almost 40% in just three years. Now, if the Federal Reserve couldn't raise the interest rates in 2018 with six and a half trillion dollars in corporate debt, how are they going to do it with 10 and a half trillion dollars of corporate debt without destroying the entire economy? They can't do that, right? Because all these growth stocks that are in bubble territory right now, the reason that they're able to have such high valuations and function is because they have such a low cost of borrowing to fund ongoing projects while they're no, not earning any money. Once that stops, these companies are going to crash, right? And you have to consider, too, all of the employment that's going on in the economy. A lot of people that are employed, and there's not many of them, by the way, but a lot of the people that are employed are employed by these big high-tech growth stocks, right? These companies are employing people based on the amount of money they can borrow in the market. If interest rates were to rise and the cost of borrowing money was to go up substantially for these companies, that's going to result in a lot of layoffs and firings of people from these companies, which means they're going to lose their, their incomes, right? A lot of the people that are earning 70, 80, 90, 100,000 dollars a year will lose their jobs if interest rates rise because corporations will no longer be able to afford to employ them. And a lot of people are not considering that factor right now. But another that we can look at, the national debt, which is today $28.4 trillion versus 2018 Q4 was it was 21.9 trillion. 
So the national debt's gone up over $7 trillion in just three years, right? If the Fed couldn't raise rates in 2018, how are they going to raise rates in 2021? How is the federal government going to be able to afford to service that debt if interest rates go up? They're not, which means that a lot of benefits that come out from the government, Social Security, Medicaid, uh, extended unemployment, any prospects of future stimulus cannot happen if interest rates rise, especially if they rise substantially. But even if they were to rise 100 basis points or 150 basis points, the federal government still could not provide anything that they provide today. Not to mention that, like I said before, a lot less people in corporate America would have jobs because their jobs would be destroyed by the higher cost of borrowing, which means the government can collect a lot less in tax revenue because nobody's working, right? And they're already collecting some such little amounts in tax revenue because, again, nobody is working. The Fed balance sheet, Q4 2018, they had $4.1 trillion worth of assets on their balance sheet, where they go into the market and they buy bonds and other financial instruments to try and prop up the market and artificially suppress interest rates. Now, they have $8.07 trillion worth of assets on their balance sheet. So if they couldn't shrink their balance sheet in 2018 in coordination with trying to raise interest rates, if they couldn't do that, in 2018, how are they going to shrink their balance sheet now when it's double what it was in 2018, right? So all of this is just, it's a complete head fake. The Fed can't do anything about inflation because they can't raise interest rates. They can't shrink their balance sheet and they know they can't do it. So they're just out there lying to the markets saying that they're going to do it in the future. But eventually the market is going to realize that they just keep pushing it down the road, and they're never going to do anything about it. And I think you're starting to see that today. I think the smart money, the institutional investors are starting to recognize that the Fed is in a box and they cannot do anything to fight inflation. And so if you're in the markets, you need to be involved in the inflation trade to hedge your portfolio because we are going to have inflation in spades. And look at, again, the U.S. Treasury yield. Q4 2018, the Treasury yield for a 10-year bond was about 3.2%. Now, as I said before, it's only 1.2%. So rates are so much lower in the, the, the bond market now, right? The Fed's gonna have to raise them a, a 150 basis points, right? They're gonna have to allow 150 basis point hike in yields for bonds just to get back to where we were in 2018. Forget getting to a normal rate of seven or eight or 9%, right? But if a 150 basis point hike in rates is impossible for the Fed, how are they going to fight six or seven or 8% annualized inflation, right? In order to do that, you would have to raise rates to nine or 10 or 11%. How could they possibly do that without the economy going into a complete depression? And again, you know that because you can reference all these levels of debt and the cost of servicing these debts now. If that was to rise substantially, corporate America would be in a huge downward trend. There would be no more small business administration loans, no more benefits shelled out from the government. If none of this can happen, right, if they raise interest rates, the Fed is not going to raise interest rates. And you have to start preparing for that. We're going to have inflation that's going to run away because the Fed cannot fight inflation. They are in a box and they cannot do anything about inflation. But when we look at the Fed minutes and the FOMC comments that they made yesterday, right, they're saying they want to start tapering and slowing down their asset purchase programs because they want to shrink their balance sheet and raise interest rates. Well, they're saying that, but in the meantime, they're doing the opposite behind the, the curtains. The Fed, when they had their last press conference with Powell, said they were gonna start slowing down their asset purchase programs. Yet at the same time, they increased their balance sheet that week by almost a half a trillion dollars. So it, it's they're saying one thing in the public to try and convince the markets that inflation is transitory and that if we have higher inflation than anticipated, they're going to do something about it. In reality, they're going to do nothing about it, which means that a lot of the inflation hedge trades that are slowing down right now, like 
precious metals. Uh, oil got hit hard this week, right? Value stocks, all the, those have been down in the past few weeks with the exception of oil, but oil is down heavy this week. Those are gonna have a lot of catching up to do once people recognize that the Fed is wrong here. They're either wrong or they're lying, but they're wrong either way, and that we are going to have hyperinflation. And it's the inflation trade, maybe not in the short term, the next couple months, but in the medium term and the long term that are really gonna play out. And so you need to be positioned properly if you're going to avoid the inflation tax because we are going to get inflation and there is nothing the Fed can do about it. Again, theoretically, they can do something about it, but it would force the economy into a depression if they did. So they are not going to do anything about it. I've been saying this for a long time now, but again, they haven't done anything about inflation since 2018. And in 2018, they barely did anything to raise rates. And again, the bubble that we have is not because of COVID, it was just exacerbated by COVID. We were in a bubble way before COVID and the bubble we're in is so huge when it pops either from the Fed raising rates or from inflation causing a bubble pop, there is going to be so much room to go to the downside. People are going to be amazed. Anyway, I wanted to do a podcast going over Tesla. Um, it's something I've been talking about for a little while that I would go over. So I did a, a short analysis on the company myself. Uh, it's somewhat undetailed, and I'm going to keep it short and sweet for this, the sense of this podcast, but I want to go over what my view of the company is, and my hope is, is that I'll get people to start thinking about things that maybe they weren't thinking about relating to Tesla, but also I want to hear any feedback for people that might disagree with me on the topic. But anyway, let's get into it. So I went and looked back. I went through the revenues for the company. And I, I did it from 2018 to today. And I was just looking at some of the financial data coming from the company. So I'm going to go over it. But I have my notes here. Um, and this, as of two days ago, Tesla's market cap, their valuation was $635 billion, right? And they, had a, they have 183 million shares outstanding, right? At a share price, the other day, I was in the high 600s. But anyway, if you look at their revenue growth from 2018 to today, in 2018, their revenues were 21.4 billion. 2019, 24.5 billion. And 2020, 31.5 billion. So their revenues have been climbing moderately and at a, a pretty uh, at a pretty stable pace. And the cost of revenues, so 2018, they had 21.4 billion. 2018, the cost of revenue was 17.4 billion. 2019 was similar. They had $24.5 billion in revenues and the cost of revenues there was 20.5 billion. And in 2020, $31.5 billion in revenues the cost of that revenue was 24.9 billion. So their net profit margins, even though their revenues are growing, the cost of revenues are growing at the same rate. 2018, their net profit margin was 18%. 2019, it was 16%. And 2020, it was back up to 18%. So while their revenues are growing, their profit margins are not growing. So that shows that they're not getting any more productive or efficient in producing cars, right? As a business continues to grow, they should become more efficient and their cost of revenue should decline. Teslas have not declined. Their revenues have risen slightly, but the cost of revenue has not risen or has not dropped at all. So their profit margins are the same. Now, uh, it, you know, if we look at the overall business, if we look at EBITDA and EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So it's basically showing what the business is doing uh, prior to any of those expenses. It's a good measure of how healthy a business is and how, how much they're growing. But anyway, they have had no EBITDA, no earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, or amortization in the history of the firm on an annual basis. So up until 2021, they still have never had a year 
where they have had any earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So you could only consider if you add in all of those additional expenses, how unprofitable the company is. This is a huge cash burning company that is just continuing to lose money year after year after year as their market share continues to grow. So if you look at the gross margins, the way they report their gross margins is different from the auto industry standard. Now it's, Tesla is an auto company. A lot of people want to say Tesla is not an auto company. It's a tech company. It's a solar company. It's a battery company. Tesla is an auto company. Most of their revenues come from selling cars. They are an auto company. But if you look at the auto company standard in the industry, most of them, they include their research and development costs in, in their margins. So if you look at Tesla, they do not include research and development in their costs. And they also don't include warranty expenses. So that actually distorts their margins more than what they're actually supposed to be. If you include those costs in Tesla's margins, then their gross margins would be nine to 10% lower than what they actually are. And so if you look at that, right, the auto industry ranges between 13 to 21% gross margins. Tesla has about a 15% annual gross margin as reported before you, uh, before you factor in research and development and warranty costs. So their gross margins are actually slightly lower than the industry standard. And so that's why their, their cost of revenues are not declining over time. But again, they're not even including research and development costs, which is sort of an accounting, an accounting trick to try and make their, their margins look better than they are. But they're an auto company and their auto sales are not any better than they were in 2018 as far as their margins are concerned. And so it doesn't matter that they're growing market share and selling more cars. Now, yes, one thing that I will give them that's positive is they are growing their sales. Uh, if we go over unit sales, and this was taken directly from Tesla's website, but if we go over unit sales, 2018, they sold 197,517 vehicles. 2019, they sold 195,125 vehicles. So a slight decline, but about the same, same amount of units. 2020, their unit sales exploded to 292,000. 902 units. So that was almost a 100,000 unit increase from 2019 to 2020. And right now for 2021, they're on pace. They right so far they've sold 139,300 units and we're only about halfway through the year. So they should be well well over 300,000 units by the time the year ends. So their sales are growing and I will give them that. But again, the problem is their margins are not increasing and they're distorting their margins by the way they take, they take them into account by excluding the research and development costs, which are very big for Tesla, by the way. Um, so their, their, their cost structure for actually manufacturing vehicles is very poor. And yes, they do have other portions of the business. They have solar panels, batteries, Right. They, they, um, they, they get in, they're getting involved in other sectors as well. And I'll get into that here in a minute, but their actual auto efficiency is poor compared to the rest of the industry standard. Okay. So, and by the way, the industry standard, the way the market measures auto companies is typically they will trade at half revenues. So whatever the annual revenue is for an auto company, right? If, for instance, if Tesla's uh, revenues in 2020 were 31.5 billion, typically, if Tesla was regarded as a typical auto company, they would be valued at half of 35.9 billion, right? Which would be 17.95 billion. And that would be their valuation if they were compared to the rest of the auto industry. Now, again, as I said, the market cap right now for Tesla is 635 billion. 
as compared to 17.95 billion, which is what the market measures all other auto industries for. So clearly the market is saying that this is not an auto company, but 90% of their revenues come from selling cars. So clearly this is very much an auto company. But if you were to measure Tesla by this same metric today, the stock price would be $16.57. That would be the, the valuation based on half times the revenues of the trailing 12 months, which would be 35.9 billion, which would be a valuation of 17.95 billion, which would price the shares at $16.57, not wherever it is today at, at around $600 plus a share. So if we wanna get into other factors in the business, there, there's a couple things I wanted to go over. And again, I understand that they, they have other lines of business. I understand they do solar panel leasing. I understand that they are making batteries and I understand that they're trying to get into the autonomous vehicle space. So I understand that's why, part of the reason for why they're getting such a high valuation today and that most investors don't look at Tesla as an auto company. But again, the problem with that is is that 90% of the revenues of the company are still from selling cars. They are a car company. And I want to get into some of the problems with their autonomous vehicles here in a minute. But um, if we look at the autonomous vehicles, you know, one of the, the things that people will say about Tesla is that the reason they're getting such a high valuation is because they're going to make an autonomous semi-truck for trucking, right, which is going to eliminate labor in the trucking industry. And they're also going to make a million robo taxis, right? And they're going to basically make all this revenue from these products because they're going to be able to sell these products to the market to, you know, for companies that can uh, take the labor out of their, their workforce. And that, that would increase productivity all over the transport industry or the taxi industry. But there's a couple problems with this. Um, and, and it's also related to the electric vehicle industry. Another reason that people say Tesla is so valuable is because they own the electrical, the electric vehicle space. And that they're, they're you know, the car market is going to shift from a typical engine to a, an electric vehicle in the future. And that may very well be true. In fact, it's probably true. The problem with that is, is even though Tesla got a head start, against the market with all traditional automakers, which was something that to be commended by the way, and they made owning an electric vehicle look very appealing, right? Tesla cars are very great products. They're, you know, they have, they're very high quality. People love driving them, right? People love the overall product. And that's something that should be commended of the company. The problem is, is the competition is catching up and catching and, and it's passing them in a lot of ways. And, there, there's a lot more market competition for the EV vehicle space now than there was three years ago. But I want to go over some of their competitors. So the auto companies that are now making electric vehicles, Audi, Volkswagen, GM, Ford, BMW, Porsche, Hyundai, and Cadillac, just to name a few. But th those are a lot of credible automakers that are already very efficient in making their cars. As I said, Tesla is not efficient in making their cars because their gross margins, if you account the auto industry standard of research and development and warranty costs, their cost of producing vehicles, their cost of sales are actually uh, higher than other automakers. So if auto, other automakers can make electric vehicles just as efficient as Tesla, they can sell them at lower prices and undercut them in the market. And so you'll see that the typical middle-class person will be able to afford some of these cars from some of these other companies as opposed to Tesla, which means that their sales in the future are probably going to decline more like 2023, 2024. You know, in, in 2023, uh, Ford is coming out with the, the F-150 Lightning, which is a Ford F-150 that's completely electric. And it's actually being said that the battery in the Ford F-150 could power your house for a week. That's much more than what a Tesla can do. And it'll give you a much higher mileage than what a Tesla gives you today. And so the fact that, that if people tell you that 
Tesla is going to own the electric vehicle space. That's simply not true anymore. And so that has to be accounted for in this, the price of the stock, right? The, the company is not going to own the auto market in the future because they're not going to own the EV market. Three years ago, you could have said, well, Tesla is going to own the entire auto market as we shift to EVs because they're the only company that produces EVs, but that's not true anymore. And then, you know, there are a lot of startups as well. I mentioned big automakers that are starting to get into manufacturing electric vehicles, but there's a lot of startups as well that are their competition. Neo, Nikola, Lee Auto, Lordstown Motors. Lordstown Motors is probably going to go bankrupt any day now, so we could throw them out. Uh, canoe holdings, but th there are tons of startups now that are also trying to get into the EV space. And so even though most of these will probably not be successful, they will eat into the market share somewhat from Tesla. And that's another headwind that the company is going to be facing in the future. And then with their, the regards to the autonomous vehicles, Tesla is actually far behind developing fully autonomous vehicles in, in comparison with a lot of other companies around the world. Two of the notable ones are Waymo, which is uh, managed by Google, and also uh, BAIC Group, which is managed by Baidu in China. I've gone over Baidu in a past episode, but um, Baidu is working in China to develop what's known as a smart road system, where they're implementing cameras and sensors throughout the entire road system in China so that they can connect to that that system to the AI computer source of the, of the autonomous vehicle. And that vehicle can communicate with the road and therefore see everything that's going on throughout the entire road around the car. And they've already implemented a lot of this in China and they are far ahead of Tesla as far as the autonomy of, of a vehicle. And they're testing robo taxis as we speak. Tesla is nowhere near where BAIC group is in regards to this. And Waymo is actually there, the testing of their vehicles has been uh, much better than the autonomous vehicles coming from Tesla. So the idea that Tesla is one day going to own the fully autonomous semi truck market or the, the robo taxi market is it's it's becoming more and more of a dream than it is a reality. The reality is there's tons of competition in this space. And to think that Tesla is going to be the company that wins out is, is a big reach. Maybe they will, but again, there's so much more competition and Tesla is a big burner of money. They're not earning enough revenues to continue to grow their balance sheet, to continue to make the investments, to build these different products the way other companies can, right? Google and Baidu have very, very healthy balance sheets with huge cash reserves. They have a better ability to be able to continue to make these capital investments to make a better autonomous vehicle and to make it quicker than Tesla can. So because of this, again, we need to value Tesla as an auto company because it's much likely, much more likely now that they're not going to take over the autonomous vehicle space. And so therefore we can't count on those future revenues to be there. So we have to, we have to evaluate it more as an auto company than anything else, not as a technology company, right? Not as a battery company because their batteries, as I said, they're far behind other EV automakers. Ford is way ahead of them in, in the, the battery space, right? Solar panels, um, actually I'll get into that in a minute because they, the, the solar panel, they, they acquired a, a company called Solar City, which Elon Musk already had stakes in and his family already had stakes in. And I want to get into that in a second, but, you know, there, there's, um, the, I, I want to go over this section with financial frauds, and I'm not by any means claiming that Tesla is a financial fraud or that Elon Musk is a financial fraud, but this is actually very interesting and it kind of gives another perspective and a way to look at Tesla as a company. So Mary Jennings uh, she created this, um, this checklist to identify, which was evident in every, every corporate fraud in, in history. She created this checklist where there were these seven things that were all uh, equivalent in all of these different corporate frauds over time and evident in every single company. And I want to just read the checklist for a minute. 
And so these are seven signs of ethical collapse, right? And companies that might be uh, fraudulent companies. And um, again, I'm not saying this, this fully applies to Tesla, but I'll go over what I think applies to Tesla. And I'm not saying they're a fraud, but I am saying that this list is actually very, very similar to a lot of things that are going on at Tesla. So the first one is pressure to maintain numbers, fear and silence, youngins and bigger than life CEO, weak board, conflicts of interest, innovation like no other, goodness in some areas, atoning for evil in other areas. So let's go through the list. Pressure to maintain numbers. Well, I already talked about how they report their gross margins and how they use creative accounting to fudge the numbers in their margins. And they don't include their research and development costs and their research and development costs are much bigger than a lot of other auto companies out there, even the ones getting into the EV space today, right? So they're, they're clearly trying to come up with accounting metrics that are trying to hide their numbers and why is that? Because they have such a high valuation in the market that every time they report earnings, they have to come out with another story to try and justify that valuation to continue to raise money from public markets to continue to make these capital investments. Because as I said, they don't have the amount of capital on their balance sheet the same way that a Google or a BAIC group has to be able to continue to make these investments in autonomous vehicles. So the only way to raise this money is to go through the public markets, right? And to do that, you have to convince people that your business is doing much better than it actually is if, in the case of your Tesla, because your margins are not increasing as you're selling more and more vehicles. And so your profits are not increasing. But that's very interesting how that applies to Tesla. Now, fear and silence, I don't think that applies to Tesla. So we'll skip that check, that check, that part of the checklist. Youngins and bigger than life CEO. Uh, there is no more bigger than life CEO than Elon Musk, um, clearly, right? I mean, he can go on Twitter, put a tweet out and move the markets, uh, the, the crypto markets by 20% in 10 minutes, um, right? He, he's a guy that is looked up to by a lot of pe people in the business arena, um, right? He started several billion dollar companies. He is a larger than life CEO. I mean, he was just on Saturday Night Live a month or two ago. But this is a person who's really looked up to by a lot of different people. And if there is ever the thought of an, a larger than life CEO, it would be an Elon Musk, right? Um, if you look at the, the weak board, Tesla has had an incredibly weak board in the past. Um, and a lot of that does have to do with Elon Musk's celebrity. But, you know, it's interesting uh, if you go back to, um, Jim Chanos, the famous short seller, did an interview with CNBC a few years ago, and, and it was, I believe it was in 2018, but he was speaking about how Tesla had all of a sudden all of these executive departures from the company. You had high uh, on the totem pole executives leaving Tesla in floods. And since 2018, Tesla's actually lost over 35 high rate executives from the company. They've just left the company. A lot of these executives too were offered very, very high stock option packages to try and recruit these people to the company and they've all left. And what Jim Chanos pointed out was that the only other two companies that have shown this type of executive departure rate in history were Valiant Pharmaceuticals and Enron. And both, of those companies ended up being financial frauds, right? And Enron went bankrupt and out of business. Valiant has lost 90% of their market share since they were exposed as a fraud. But he pointed out that the only other two places in history where you could see this amount of executive departures were in those other two companies. And I'm not, again, saying that Tesla is a fraud because of this, but I'm just saying this is something that actually should be pointed out and people should look more into and, and think, why is that? Right. And if you go back to the first point that I made of pressure to maintain numbers, um, there were actually executives within this, the Tesla company that were reporting to Elon Musk and had told him uh, that the semi truck was not anywhere near 
uh, production. They told them this in 2018. They said that, uh, or sorry, in 2017, they said that the semi truck was nowhere near close to being produced and neither was the Roadster. Uh, and Elon Musk, after they told him that, went on the conference call to report earnings later in that quarter and told the market that semi trucks would be ready by 2021 and that the Roadster would be ready by 2022, neither of which turned out to be true. And, and he, as they said, they told him those weren't true, yet he still reported it on the earnings call anyway. So again, that shows pressure to maintain numbers. And it shows that you have a very weak board where the CEO of the company does not take anything into consideration when the board tells him that, and they're leaving in floods, right? As I said, since 2018, we've had 35 executive departures from Tesla, which is an extremely high number and only has been evident in both Enron and Valiant Pharmaceuticals. Conflicts of interest. So as I said, the solar portion of Tesla, they actually acquired a company called Solar City. Now, Solar City, before being acquired by Tesla, Elon Musk had a stake ownership in the company, and so did a lot of members of his family. And the company was actually going bankrupt. At the time that Tesla acquired Solar City, they Solar City's corporate bonds were yielding over 20% because it was such a high-risk loan to make, according to the market, because the company was going out of business. And if you look at a lot of the depositions from Solar City, a lot of the executives in Solar City believed the company was going to go out of business. So Elon Musk used shareholder money in Tesla to bail out this company and acquire this company. And it was very highly questioned at the time. Now, I will say 80% of Tesla executives at the time believed in the merger and the acquisition. So you do have that. But there is a clear conflict of interest there. And when you talk about Elon Musk, I mean, he is the ultimate conflict of interest. He's the CEO of SpaceX, right? He has a boring company. He had, he's invested in, uh, what other companies does he have? Uh, I'm not sure if I wrote them down, but he has like six different companies that he is fully in charge of that. And he has all these different interests, right? And so it, you don't even know how long he's going to continue to be the CEO of Tesla, right? Who knows when he's going to make his move over to SpaceX, but there's so many conflicts of interest here. Uh, the next one, innovation like no other, right? And again, that's the whole story behind Tesla. They're, they have innovation like no other, right? Their, EV, their EVs are like no other product, which is clearly not true at this point. They have fully autonomous vehicles that are coming out like no other product. Again, totally not true at this point. They're, they put a billion and a half dollars of their balance sheet and converted it into Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin technology, like no other, it's going to be the future of money, whether you believe that or not. I mean, clearly there's a narrative here where they keep saying that they have innovations like no other, right? That is very, very evident here in Tesla. And again, lastly, goodness in some areas, atoning for evil in others. Now, I want to point out, because Elon Musk, he's a very controversial guy, but you know, he's a very, he, he's very uh, erratic at times, but he definitely voices his opinion on things. And I want to kind of go over, um, you know, he's been very negative on lobbyists from oil producing companies that have lobbied politicians in Washington, D.C. over time. He's been very, very critical of that. And, you know, you can take that for what it is. I mean, some people would agree with that. Some people would disagree, but take it for what it is. But the thing is, he's not critical of government intervention when they place tax subsidies and tax credits for electric vehicle makers, right? He's not critical when the government places policies that helps his business, but he's very critical when the, the government places policies that are against his interests, right? So, you know, it's okay for it's not okay for oil producers to lobby politicians, but it's okay for EV makers to lobby politicians. So there's a clear, um, a, you know, clear atonement there. And, you know, the other part of this, because this is actually a very big point, because a lot of people will say one thing for Tesla is that the government is moving the environment artificially towards EVs in the future and Tesla is gonna benefit from that. Well, a lot of vehicle, manufacturers have caught up with this and they started making hybrid vehicles, right? 
And these hybrid vehicles are, even though they're not necessarily supposed to be electric vehicles because they have the capacity to drive a, a few miles with an electric charge, they're considered hybrid vehicles. And so other automakers are now in the same boat as Tesla, if you will, right? But this is not as, uh, you know, a lot of people say this is a great thing for Tesla. It's not as great as people think because other auto manufacturers have caught up to this, right? So because there's so much EV competition now, and because there are so many hybrid vehicles being made by companies that would normally make uh, traditional engine vehicles, this isn't as apparent in the market anymore. But it's just another example of how, uh, you know, Tesla is saying that they're much more innovative than uh, compared to other companies than they actually are. And, you know, I just want to go over Elon Musk too, because, you know, again, take with that list what you will. That's the list for identifying corporate frauds. It seems to me as if Tesla checks off six of the seven boxes there. Um, but that's just my personal opinion, looking at it in an objective manner, right? But if you look at Elon Musk as a CEO, right, if you invest in a company, you want to know that their management is competent and going to produce well for the company and take the company in a, in a good direction. And if you look at C, uh, the CEO, Elon Musk, right, a um, few things there. He, he, I mean, I will give him this. He's a great promoter. He's a great brand ambassador, right? A lot of people buy Teslas simply because they look up to Elon Musk, right? It's, it's sort of a cult, if you will. He's built up a cult following and he's a great promoter and I will give him that. And that's very good. And you want that in your CEO. He gets Tesla a ton of free marketing just because of all of, all of his social media presence, right? All the people that follow him and, and listen to everything that he says. And that's a great thing in a CEO, but he's also very erratic. I mean, is, do you want your CEO the CEO of a major public company to be a very erratic person? No, of course not, right? You want that person to be very sound. You want that person to be a great manager. You don't want them to be erratic. You don't want them waking up on the wrong side of the bed one morning, and now they're going to play, place a tweet that's going to move markets by four or 5%, right? You want them to be sound and have sound judgment. Uh, you know, again, he's has... Uh, because he's tweeted so much, he has all of this litigation that looms over him. I'll go to the Bitcoin example. He has said in past, uh, first of all, before he decided to buy Bitcoin, he pumped the price up by tweeting. He then bought Bitcoin and then pumped it up even more. But now he's saying that no matter what, Tesla is not going to sell its remaining uh, stake in Bitcoin. Well, if he said that, that's going to move markets as far as who's investing in Tesla. So if he at this point sells and goes back on that, there might be a lot of looming litigation from that. So you don't wanna do that as a CEO of a company. Again, he's spread way too thin. He's working at SpaceX, he has a boring company, right? He has all these ongoing projects aside from Tesla. If you're the CEO of a, a company in the S&P 500, you have so many other things that you, 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 you don't have the time to do yet he's trying to spread himself throughout all these projects. Is that what you really want from your CEO? And then again, I'll just reference all of the executive departures. You know, if, if he's such a great leader at the company, why are so many people leaving in spades? So take that for what it is. But the last thing I wanna go over with Tesla is all of the different uh, economic factors that might affect the company that are relevant outside of what the company is doing for operations. And I think this is very important to go over because Tesla is a very cyclical company. They rely on a very, very uh, productive economy in order to sell their products because their products are high-end products. Um, so what if consumer credit tightens in the future? What if people can't borrow money as much in the future as they can today? When you pay for a Tesla, you can put very little money down to buy that Tesla. And they actually allow you to make the down payment on a credit card. Now, if credit conditions tighten, that won't be the case anymore. They won't be able to sell as many vehicles to people who can't afford them in cash, but that buy them with credit. So if there's any slowing in, cre in credit conditions, then their sales are going to drop extensively. Rising labor costs, right? Labor costs are going up not only in the U.S., but all over the world, right? 
and you have rising material costs as well, there's a lot of inflationary factors. And so if they can't increase their margins prior to having inflation periods, how are they going to be able to keep their margins the same when you have high amounts of inflation, both in the labor and in, in materials markets? Rising transportation costs, right? Tesla has the model where they don't have car dealerships, they ship all their cars to all their customers. Well, with the price of oil continuing to climb, their transport costs are gonna to continue to go up. And so it's another factor that's gonna hurt their margins, right? Especially because they deliver all their vehicles all over the world, that is a huge cost in their business that other automakers don't have, right? Automakers that have traditional dealerships don't have these costs. And then you, you also have corporate tax increases, right? Corporate tax increases might occur and that not is, is not gonna only affect Tesla, but it'll affect all companies. So, but that is a consideration you have to factor into the valuation of the company. And then the other thing that you have to do, right? Is you have to consider all the increased competition. There is so much competition as I've already discussed that's coming in here, that's going to take market share away from Tesla. So the likelihood that their sales are gonna to continue to increase into 2023 and 2024 and beyond with all of the automakers that are going into the EV space, it's much more likely that they're gonna lose market share than gain market share. But again, these are economic headwinds that need to be factored into Tesla. And if you're going to put the incredible multiple on Tesla, as I said, the auto industry standard is that in the market, auto companies trade at half, half revenues. Tesla currently is trading at four to five times revenues, eight times higher than the typical auto manufacturer. And it's because people think it's more than an auto company. As I've said, more than 90% of their revenues come from selling cars. They are an auto company. And the stock price right now, based on that, should be about $16.57, which would be about half of revenues per share. But they're not. They're, they're much higher than that because this stock is in a bubble. People are pinning their hopes and dreams on Tesla to take over the world, right? And, you know, I, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I wrote my notes here, you know, like things bulls would say on the company, right? Semi-trucks and $1 million robo-taxis are on the way in the future. They'll be here next year or two years from now. Yeah, right. Bitcoin is going to $500,000 a coin. Give me a break. Elon Musk will dominate the Mars market, right? Once that Tesla is, once SpaceX gets to Mars, they're going to be able to produce Teslas for all the people that live in Mars, right? Uh, the total addressable market in space, and I've gone over the TAM, what TAM is in other podcasts, but the total addressable market in space is, is infinite. So they can grow their market share infinitely in space once they get there. Um, Never bet against Elon Musk, right? He's a larger than life CEO, as I've mentioned, never bet against him. Uh, so many people say this, but it doesn't change the, the dynamics of a, a business model of a company. Tesla isn't a car company. It's a battery company. It's a solar company. It's a technology company. It's all of the above. It's a company for everybody. It's a space company, right? It's, uh, it's a finance company. You know, it's, it's creating crypto... Uh, ventures in the future. I mean, people think this company is everything, but again, over 90% of its revenues come from auto sales. It is a car company. Car companies, right, are car manufacturers are very capital intensive business models. And that is why they get a valuation, which is half revenues. And again, if you evaluate Tesla at half revenues, the company is worth $16.57 based on its trailing 12-month revenues of $35.9 billion. But anyway, that's it for Tesla. That's what I think about Tesla. I want to know what you guys think about Tesla. Drop your comments below. I want to hear from you guys. If you guys make good comments, I'll, I'll address them in my next podcast. But I want to hear from you guys what you think uh, on the whole Tesla story as it is, um, positive or negative. And you know, that, that's it. But for this podcast, remember, the Fed is in a box. They can't do anything to fight inflation because if they try and fight inflation, they are going to destroy the entire economy by popping the bubble that we're in that was created from artificially low interest rates. 
So they're not going to fight inflation. They're going to let inflation run hot. And the inflation trade is the place to be in the next year from now, not high-tech growth stocks like Tesla.